0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. I'll never forget the time almost been a couple years ago now when uh after a Christmas Eve service here at the church, my family and I returned home, uh, kind of eager to begin our Christmas celebrations. And suddenly, someone realized that we had lost a set of keys. It's completely, not just one key, but the whole key ring was gone. And so, you know, we began to frantically search around the house, I turned up nothing. I think I returned here to the church to look around here, still, nothing. And it was at this point that someone finally suggested to me that perhaps I should check the trash can. And I kind of poked around in you know the top few layers a little bit, uh, not really wanting to dive into that. and uh, Continued to look around the house, still didn't find it. Finally, I decided to take the lid off the trash can and get another bag, in piece by disgusting piece, to pick out each piece of trash and put it in a new trash bag, inspecting each piece of that for, for my keys, any sign of, of our keys. And wouldn't you know, as, as I got down to the very bottom of the trash can, the very last piece of trash, out pops the keys. Isn't that just the way it goes? I I can tell you, I don't remember anything else I got for Christmas that year, but I still remember finding those keys. You know, given enough time and effort, I was able to find the, the treasure of this little treasure hunt. However, the Bible tells us when it comes to the ultimate treasure hunt, I'm referring, of course, to the pursuit of infinite treasure, the pursuit of God. That no one is seeking after him. Given enough time and effort, we can usually find what we're looking for, but when it comes to man's broken relationship with God, I can tell you that more time to search is not the answer. In fact, I, I think that's what Genesis chapter six, one of the major points that it's trying to make, is that more time is not the answer. We see here at the very beginning of the passage, starting in in verse 3 here, that God shortened our lifespan. He shortened it. You know, we've, we've discussed at length here as we've been marching through the book of Genesis that life as we now know it, outside of the Garden of Eden, is completely different. It's way different than, than the way God originally intended it to be, right? We, we've talked about that a lot. But this morning, we're, we're going to take that even a step further. We're going we're gonna to think about the fact that life as we now know it is also way different than, than God initially allowed it to be after the fall, Even a a cursory reading of the genealogies of of Genesis 4 and 5 reveals that the lifespans of those who lived in between the fall and the flood was about ten times longer than what we now enjoy. I mean, if you sit down and read that, that's usually like the first thing that stands out. You think, what's the deal with people living to be up into their 900s? I mean, it's sort of a, a glaring question that just leaps off the page. It seems here that before the fall, life was more durable, that a normal lifespan was just shy of a millennium. You know, my generation is called the millennial generation. We, don't, we got nothing on these guys, right? They, they are the millennium generations right here. And not only that, but people were still being fruitful and multiplying way up into their hundreds. I mean, can you imagine that? You I know, mean, when I was a kid, I used to picture this as, you know, I pictured my great-grandma, who was probably like in her 90s at the time, I don't know. And I thought, man, how wrinkly would a 900-year-old person be, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's how I pictured that. But I don't think it worked that way. I think God made life more durable, right? And, and people were still vibrant and strong and multiplying and filling the earth and, and doing things and creating culture up into their, their very, very late ages of, nine, of into the 900s. Now listen carefully. We, we shouldn't just dismiss this information as legendary just because it, it seems so different than what we are now experiencing, Right? i mean can we just acknowledge that that as we read this we probably the first thing that we think is that man this sounds kind of legendary all right? but let me encourage you don't dismiss god's word because a previous epic of time in the history of the world is different than the epic of time that you happen to be living in you see I think this is where the the scientific method, as helpful as it is, can only take you so far. Scientific testing and research lives or dies on a major presumption. And that major presumption is this, that, that there are certain predictable constants in the universe that don't ever change. What I'm reading here, as I've been meditating on these first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6 this week, what I'm reading here is telling me that there came a time in the history of the world where the creator of the world stepped into time, and he changed some of the parameters. Right? He stepped in, and he said, enough is enough. I need to make some pretty drastic changes. That's what I read here in Genesis chapter 6. I mean, look at this, verse 3. God says... Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years." Now some people think that this is God sort of starting a, a doomsday clock here of it's going to be 120 years until the flood. But I, I really don't think that's right. I think that, that this is God explaining to us here why we don't live to be almost a thousand years old. Now, I will admit that it seems that God implemented this change gradually, gradually, after the fall. So if you were to read through the rest of the book of Genesis up into the the beginning of the book of Exodus, you'll see that the the age, the lifespan of the biblical characters slowly and steadily drops. After the flood, it kind of trickles down into the four and 500s. By the time you get to Abraham, Abraham lived to be 175, Isaac was 180 when he died, Jacob 147, and then by the time you get to Moses, who, by the way, wrote the book of Genesis, we finally arrive at this promised 120-year lifespan. Moses was 120 when he died, Joshua, who succeeded Moses as the leader of Israel, was 110. Moses' brother Aaron was 123 when he died. And I really, I get, get the impression just from even reading that section of, of Scripture that Moses and Aaron and Joshua were sort of rarities in their day as well. I think that the in, in actuality the lifespan had come down to much more what we're used to today, that of 60, 70, or 80 years. And so, this is kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to just gloss over this in the text. It's kind of a big deal that, that God stepped into time and shortened our lifespan. And, and I think one takeaway take from it right here at the beginning that I'll, I'll just say is that, you know, if life feels tragically short, it's because it is. <laughs> you know, um, my son was... Uh, I was reading in the book of James last night and popped into my office as I was putting on some finishing touches on the old sermon and uh, alerted me to to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14 says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know From, from God's perspective you, you know that passage, and I think it's in First or Second Peter, says that, "To the Lord, uh, a thousand years is like a day and a, a day is like a thousand years." I mean, even here giving us 900 some odd years to live, to the Lord is nothing, right? Who is eternal? but now he's shortening us down even further. And from God's eternal perspective, our lives here on earth are just a vapor. You know? We have one of these um, spray bottles you use, you know, to fix your hair. Obviously, I don't use it anymore, but my rest of my family does. But, you know, you spray it and you see that mist, it's there for a second and it's gone. You know, that's the way the Bible describes our lifespan in the perspective of eternity. We are living here for, for such a short period of time, brothers and sisters, you know, it, it feels so often, the, the present feels so uh, hard at times, right? And we're weighed down by so many cares and so, by so many trials, so many troubles and tribulations, but, but hang on and, and persevere because in the grand scheme of things, these are just momentary and light tribulations that will not even compare in any way to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. Life is just a vapor. It goes by so fast. And our, our task here this morning, I think, is to, as we consider this transition from the pre-flood world to the flood story here in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be asking ourselves the question, why did God do this? What is the context of the worldwide flood Why did God take such drastic action? And if I could answer that question just simply here, it would be because of the depravity of the human heart. God did this because of the depravity of the human heart. You know, I I think so often so often there there are so many things in the Bible that are just so memorable. You know, take David and Goliath, for example. I mean, such a such a memorable story. Take Noah and, and the ark, such a, a memorable story. And here we have God, I think, in a, in a period of time in between the fall and the flood, illustrating something really, really important. Illustrating how depraved the human heart is. You know, we, we think, as I said at the beginning, that, man, if I just had some more time, maybe I could figure this out. Maybe I could figure life out, right? And God shows us that, look, I originally gave you 900 years and things didn't get better, right? They got worse. And this illustrates just the depths of our depravity, okay? So this is kind of where we're going to be headed here this morning. Longer life with depraved hearts didn't lead to a fervent pursuit of God, but what we see here is that longer life with depraved hearts only led to a fuller and more advanced expression of depravity, right? We, we took that extra time and we got our doctorate in depravity, right? We became experts in it. We expressed it more fully. And this text really gives us two illustrations here of this depravity. One, I believe that what the text is talking about here is the demonization of marriage. Verses 1 and 2 and also verse 4. And then we also see here rampant violence. And I kid you not, these are probably some of the toughest verses in all of Scripture to interpret. Okay, so we're, we're only going to be able to, to kind of skim over this a little bit. But I, I think... What I want to say before we start talking about, especially this first one, is that I don't want you to get too bogged down in what we don't know here about this. There's a lot that is unknowable about these next few verses, uh, but I think the, the, if we step back from it, what we can see here is just a, a very um, vivid picture of depravity, of human depravity. Okay, so let's talk about this first one here, the demonization of marriage. I'm just going to read a couple verses here, Genesis 6 verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. If you skip to verse 4 then, it says that the Nephilim, or I believe the New King James and the King James just goes ahead and translates that as the giants, were on the earth in those days and also, after, afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there was giants, Nephilim and Geborim, the, the mighty men of old, men of renown. And, and what, are we, what, are, what is being described for us here? I used to believe that, that what this meant was that the sons of God were, uh, was referring to the offspring of the godly line of Seth. Remember, we, we've been talking about how in Gen- Genesis chapter 4, we saw the descendants of the ungodly line of Cain, and then Genesis chapter 5 was the godly line descending from Seth, through whom ultimately God would eventually bring the Christ. And so I I used to believe that this, here in Genesis chapter 6, was talking about the sons of God, the godly sons of Seth, choosing to intermarry with the ungodly daughters of the line of Cain and and thereby sort of defiling themselves, being led astray and becoming godless and depraved right before the, the generation that led to the flood. And... I'm not completely discounting that. That may indeed be the, the interpretation, the right interpretation of this passage. I mean, if so, it's, the point is well taken. It, God warns us that, that it is not appropriate for those of us who are in Christ to be joined intentionally with those who are not in Christ in marriage. Right? That's, that shouldn't be our aim because there's often a tendency in and through that to be led astray. Right? And the scriptures speak of you know, beyond that how inappropriate it is for us to want to join our, ourselves who are in Christ to some, someone who is not in Christ. Right? There's, it's a point well taken if that's the point. However, I, I've looked at this passage more closely this week than I ever have before and I have to say that my view has changed. I now believe that this phrase, the sons of God here, is referring to fallen angels. And, and I believe this for, for three reasons. And there, you know, I'm just going to, like I said, I can't really enter into this too deeply. Uh, but I, I'll present it to you and if, if you want to discuss it further, I'm, I'm more than willing to do that here. Um, firstly, I think my battery just died on this thing here. Could you advance my slide up there, Toby? Firstly, I think that, that sons of God refers to fallen angels because it agrees with the, the way this phrase is used in the rest of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Job. You might remember from the book of Job where it describes the sons of God coming before the Lord, and among them is Satan. You know, so if you want to read those Job 1 6 and 2 4. And also, it speaks in Job 38 7 about the sons of God shouting for joy as God created the earth. And then, Daniel chapter 3 uh, is the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the fiery furnace. And as Nebuchadnezzar is looking in there, and he sees one like a, a son of God, right, in there with them. An angel. It's used to refer to an angel or the angel of God. So this is the way the phrase is used through the rest of the Old Testament. Secondly, it really does agree with most early Jewish interpreters before and after Christ. So I could rattle these off to you. Uh, The Septuagint, uh, the book of First Enoch, the book of Jubilees, the writings of Philo and Josephus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, all seem to point to the fact that this is referring to angels, not to men. And then after Christ, it was the view of, of the earliest church fathers, those like Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. And then thirdly, I, and I think most persuasively, is if you look at the passages in the New Testament that refer to this, Jude, verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, and 1 Peter 3, 18-22. I'm not going to read those to you now, but if you read those, you will certainly get the impression that that as they're referring to Genesis chapter 6, that they too view the sons of God as fallen angels. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? If this is correct, then what's being described here is that fallen angels were somehow taking wives from the daughters of men. Yikes, right? Uh Resulting, it seems here, in some unusual offspring, giants and great warriors of old. As I said, the the New Testament passages that refer to this not only seem to uh, affirm this interpretation, but they also add to it that the fallen angels who participated in this were, were chained up in hell, awaiting final judgment for what they did. So I don't, I don't know if I, if I want to even enter, enter into this much further than what I've just done, right? But this is what I, I'm seeing. This is what I, I think the scriptures are teaching. And even though it's hard to understand and even though it's mysterious in many ways, I trust the word of God. And I trust that God was there back then when this was going on. And, and it was up to him to describe it to us. And what I think is being described here, as I said, is the demonization of marriage. Something so grievous to God that he eventually shortened our lifespan and planned to send a worldwide flood, wiping out everybody and everything. Really does explain the punishment too. The second illustration here that we have is that of rampant violence. I'm not gonna spend as much time on this, I think it's just readily apparent that these Nephilim and these mighty men, these giants, I mean, those words themselves remind us of Goliath and they just reek of power and violence. But if you look a little bit further down in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13, we read that right before the flood that the earth was filled with violence. It's filled with violence. And so you take these two illustrations together, and we have a pretty bleak picture of the pre-flood world. In many ways, it was different, and yet in other ways, it was not that different at all. All of this has been the visible symptoms of the problem, but verse 5 here is going to get to what is really at the heart of the matter. It's going to talk about the depravity of the human heart. So look, look here at, at Genesis Chapter 6 and verse 5. This is really a key verse here in this passage. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is (laughs) perhaps the most comprehensive description of the depravity of human heart in all of Scripture. Right? I mean, it's like the descriptive words just keep getting stacked up here. And what I'm... The way i'm describing this verse here is that it gives us the three dimensions of our depravity its depth its width and its length first its depth we see that our depravity is heart deep it's heart deep right god said that as he looked he was looking at the thoughts and the intents of the heart He's looking all the way to the heart. Man looks upon what is seen, but God looks upon what is unseen. Right? He looks all the way to our hearts. We we think that we can have these thoughts that no one else sees, but God sees, right? And when God looks into our hearts, what does he see? He sees evil. He sees evil. The problem of our depravity is heart deep. This week I was trying unsuccessfully to repair my washing machine, broke down. It was making noises for months. I did nothing, right? It finally broke down. I was trying to repair it. And as I was doing the work, I decided to put on these latex gloves to, to protect my hands a little bit because I had gotten a, like a metal shaving splinter the night before when I was working on it. And so after working on my washing machine for a little while, I, I got frustrated. I wasn't fixing it. So, I decided to, to stop my work and to consult YouTube, right? Uh, that's the only reason I know anything about fixing a washing machine is, is thanks to YouTube. So, I grabbed my phone and I was about to start touching the screen and kind of swiping around on there and suddenly I looked down and I realized that my hands were, were covered in grease, right? And I said, hey, no problem. That's why I put the gloves on to begin with, right? I just whipped those bad boys off and started using my phone. Underneath, my hands were spick and span. They were clean. You know, the problem is that a lot of people, when they think about the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man, they think of, of their sinfulness almost like those gloves, right? That almost like the, the sinfulness lays like a, a grimy layer on the outer surface. But if you dig down deep enough, you're going to see that I'm really a pretty good person, right? It's going to shine through. What the scriptures teach us is, com- is completely d- different from that. It teaches us that the corruption goes all the way down, all the way down to the very thoughts and intents of our heart. It's not just on the surface. It's deep. Secondly, it's wide. It's wide. The, the verse says here that it's every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, right? There's no exception. It's very wide. It's much wider than we think. The book of Romans teaches us an important truth. In Romans fourteen twenty three, it says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know, we often, you know, look at the, at the surface of things and we think, wow, that, that looks like a pretty good thing. How could that be sin? But God tells us if it wasn't done in faith, then it was sin. And furthermore, the scriptures tell us that the two most important commandments of all is to love God with all that you have and to love others as yourself. So when we do other things with a lesser motive, a lesser intent of the heart, then it falls short of the glory of God. And it is ultimately sin in God's eyes. It it, it explains here why every thought of the, intent of the heart and is only evil in in, in the sight of a holy God now the question is excuse me while I grab my water the question is does this refer to only the flood generation oh I skipped one here didn't I the third dimension it's length it's length Not only is our corruption deeper than we think, it goes all the way down to the heart. Not only is it wider than we think, every and only thought of the heart, but it's also longer than we think. It's continuous. The, the, the verse says that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. In other words, this wasn't just an intermittent problem, right? It's something that's ongoing. It's ongoing. And so as I began to say, the, the question here is, did this just describe the generation wiped out by the flood or does it describe us all? I'm here to tell you this morning that this most assuredly describes us all. I think the most poignant expression of this in all of scriptures is Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I believe the Bible teaches that we are totally depraved. One, one theologian defines total depravity in this way. He said, when we speak then of total depravity, what we mean is that the corruption of sin pervades the whole person. Sin affects every aspect of our being, the body, the soul, the mind, the will, and so forth. The total or whole person is corrupted by sin. No vestigial island of righteousness escapes the influence of the fall. Sin reaches into every aspect of our lives, finding no shelter of isolated virtue. Woo! That's heavy, isn't it? Now, Now, don't misunderstand me. Total depravity does not mean that we are utterly depraved doesn't mean that we're utterly depraved. What's the difference between total depravity and utter depravity? Well, utter depravity means that a person as quote is quote as wicked as he can possibly be. So to say that you're corrupted all the way to your heart and that your every thought is only evil continually before God isn't the same thing as saying that you are expressing as much wickedness as you can possibly express at every single moment of your life. So, in other words, um, think about a notorious sinner like Adolf Hitler, right? Easy, Easy to pick on Adolf Hitler. Even a notorious sinner like Adolf Hitler had room to grow in his wickedness, right? Given enough time, can you imagine Adolf Hitler living for 900 years? how he might have grown in his wickedness over time. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 6, I know this is some deep waters here. Stick with me. We're almost through it. Here in Genesis chapter 6, not only is this an expression of amazement and grief at our total depravity, but I believe that as God looks out at this generation, he is seeing them hurtling 100 miles an hour towards utter depravity. You know, my, my family and I recently picked up uh, this memorable little saying from a book that we're reading, and the, the saying is this, the longer it sits, the worser it gets. The longer it sits, the worser it gets. The, the main character of the book that we've been reading would say this expression as an excuse to, to eat up tasty fruit as soon as possible, right? The longer that fruit sits there, the worser it gets. Hey, let me eat it right now. So we've started saying this expression around our house, right? Whenever Michelle comes home from the store, you know, hey, we might as well eat it now because the longer it sits, the worser it gets, you know? Anything tasty. And, you know, my kids have even tried this with ice cream. And I said, you know, it doesn't really work with ice cream. You know, Don't push it too far. We went to the the peach orchard last Saturday and um, went picking fresh peaches. Who knew that there's peach trees in in New Jersey? I never knew that. You know, I I think peach trees, Georgia, right? But uh, I guess we have them here too. We went to to the peach orchard, and I'm always amazed when I go to an orchard how much fruit is just laying on the ground underneath the trees. It seems like such a waste, you know? And I was walking around trying not to step on squishy peaches, as I'm picking the fresh ones off the tree. And, uh, you know, I, this is what a pastor thinks as he walks around in an orchard. I start thinking about total depravity, right? You know, look at this fruit that has fallen upon the ground. It, it's completely wasted. It's only going to get worser, right? The longer it sits there, the worser it's going to get. And I think that's the, 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 sort of the moral of the story here from Genesis chapter 6, when it comes to the, the depraved, wicked human hearts that, that we share, the longer it sits, the worser it gets. Total, totally depraved hearts don't ever get fresher. We're like those peaches that have fallen off the tree. We only get more rotten over time. Thirsty for some grace yet? I know I am. We're going to end with some grace. Toby, can you advance my slide to the last point here? Finally, in verse 8, skip down to verse 8. After traversing through some, some of the darkest verses in the Bible, we arrive here aching for some light, and we read this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. You know, the, the Hebrew word translated here as favor can also be translated as grace. Can be translated as grace. Uh, after all, what is grace but undeserved favor? And I, I, I was reading one commentary this week that pointed this out to me. I never thought about it before, but this is actually the, the first time that grace is explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Right here. That Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Make no mistake, Noah didn't deserve it. The very word grace excludes this. Noah was was totally depraved, a sinner just like the rest of us. And so we, we should conclude here, we should conclude that Noah, of all people on the face of the earth, I'm sorry, we should not conclude here that Noah somehow by his nobility searched out and found God just because of who he was, right? Noah found grace the same way that you and I find grace. We find grace because God's grace first finds us. We've talked about the depth and the width and the length of our evil hearts this morning. Yet we, we end now by declaring something greater than the evil in our hearts. Right? We can declare the grace and the mercy of God that can overcome our sinfully depraved hearts. We so often sing this song called His Mercy is More. The chorus of that song says, praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Right? If you want to know the, the grace of God and you want to see it on display, look no further than the cross of Christ. At the cross, God's love and mercy and power over the corruption of our hearts is on display as Jesus dies as a substitute for our sins. He's buried dead in the grave and yet three days later rises again to newness of life so that those who repent and believe in him might experience indestructible, eternal life with him forever by his grace. We've spoken of the dimensions of our depravity this morning, but Paul speaks of the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Actually, he prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 that they might have the strength to comprehend the dimensions of God's love. He says, he prays that they might comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He says that the dimensions of Christ's love surpasses understanding. It surpasses knowledge. Paul says in Romans eight thirty eight and 39, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. I love the the Getty song that says, My heart is filled with thankfulness to Him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in His light, and wrote His law of righteousness with power upon my heart. We have much to give thanks for this morning, church. God has delivered us by His grace from a mighty evil, not just an evil without, but an evil within. I couldn't help but ask myself the question this week, why didn't God just go all the way and wipe out humanity? I mean, he, he was bothering to send a flood on the whole earth. He was going to wipe out all flesh, not just all humans, but all the creatures as well. Why didn't he just go all the way and and wipe us out and start over again? What was it that stayed his hand and led him to be gracious to Noah? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Let's pray.